All right, the book of Jude. The book of Jude. Now, I know last Sunday we made it to the big, I, I guess we'll call it the, the big controversy surrounding uh, one of the verses in Jude about whether who those angels are. But before we, before we get there, we're going to back up a little bit. I know we backed up a little bit last week, but we're going to keep backing up until I feel that uh, there's, there's complete understanding of this uh, because I went back and listened and I felt like, I don't know. I don't know if uh, I got the point across or not. Whenever um, we talked about this a little bit in Romans, we talked a little bit this in Jude. I mean, I talk about this all the time. Obviously, I, I constantly talk about the significance and importance of hermeneutics and that all disagreements are hermeneutical disagreements because you can fight about a doctrinal dispute, but unless there's an agreement on the hermeneutical approach each is taking to that, that doctrinal subject, you can never come to an agreement, all right? So we have to we have to try to determine uh, certain things about hermeneutics, and one of the things I sometimes refer to as is what I refer to as the hermeneutical key. What is the hermeneutical key? How do we understand? What's the key that gives us understanding to a particular chapter, a particular pastor, a pass, a passage, or a particular book? We always have to find that key, and most of the time. There's very, like you can have 10 people in a room and say, what's the hermeneutical key? And you'll get, well, 30 different answers. And you're like, okay, well, we're never going to come to an agreement. So we're using a little bit of the first part of Jude to demonstrate this. So let's, let's work through this again. If we, if we start in Jude, if you remember our outline, our outline's very simple. The first thing we started with in our outline was the... The greeting, okay, the greeting, okay, and the greeting gives us some basic information. It gives us the author, right? Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are, so he gives us, the, the greeting gives us the author, it gives us the recipients, does it not? Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, next two words, to them, those are the recipients he's writing to, and they are described as sanctified preserved and called. You can't forget that. All right. It's amazing how quickly people can forget those words. All right. The people he is writing to, he refers to them as sanctified. I mean, set apart for God's purpose, preserved. Obviously that's being kept and then called, right? We have all of that right there. Very simple. Then we have what in verse two? We have the blessing. He gives them a blessing. And that blessing is three parts. What is it? Mercy, peace, and love. Not only is he reminding them of that, but I've tried to challenge the idea that not only have they received this blessing, they now are to be people who take this, this becomes, the blessing becomes kind of the character, the attitude which they are to take into what the purpose of the book is. All right. So we have the greeting. What's the next part of our outline? The purpose, okay? The purpose, all right? I kind of already told you, all right? So the purpose, verse three, beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you. Everybody see that? <clears throat> so he's clearly the people he's identified. Hey, when I gave, when I, when I decided to write unto you, what was he going to write about? The common salvation. That's what he was, he was going to write to them about the common salvation. Once again, identifying that the recipients of this letter are perceived to be what? Christians. Believers. Has everyone got that? All right. That seems to be, I mean, I, I don't know how, well, how many different ways we can see that. All right. Clearly, they, they are viewed as being believers. So, to these believers who are sanctified, who are preserved, who are called, who have been given a blessing of mercy, peace, and love, to these believers, instead of writing about the common salvation, he decides to do what? To exhort them that they should earnestly contend for the faith. Now again, I just heard someone say the word warn. I just heard someone say the word warn. Okay, there, there's, some, there's a disconnect somewhere, and I don't know exactly how to fix the disconnect, okay? 
So what we have to figure out is exactly what is he trying to do? When Jude writes to them, what is he trying to do? What is Jude attempting to do here? It's open book. The answer is in that verse. Okay, I was going to write to you about the common salvation. Then what does it say? So, someone just said it? It's right there in the text, right? I'd exhort you. What does that mean? We, 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 went, through all, every, we went through every word of this. Okay, we, we literally went through every word of this. There we go. We, went, we, we looked at the, all of the meanings. To beseech, to beg, to encourage. So he is writing to encourage them, to beg them, to plead with them. And he, for some weird reason, we immediately say to warn them. Right? Do you see, the, you see the difference in that? Like if I write a letter and some person like, man, Pastor wrote us a letter and he's just warning us. And someone else is like, no, he's pleading and begging and encouraging us. That would be a bad situation, right? Because nobody could agree on what my actual purpose was. If we can't figure out exactly what Jude was attempting to do, there's no point in going any further in the study. We should just stop and just say, well, we can't figure this out and give up. And I'll go home now. Right? So we have to figure it out. So again, what is the purpose of his writing? To exhort believers, right? We've already established that he's writing to believers. Does everyone agree with that? Yes? He's writing to believers and he's trying to encourage them, to exhort them, to plead with them, to beg with them to do what? Contend for the faith. You... He's, he, he's not, in, in this sense, it's not a warning. It's an encouragement. It's a pleading with them to contend for the faith which they are perceived to what? To have and to believe, right? Because they've already been described as, how have they been described again? Sanctified, preserved, called, and they are partakers of the common salvation because he was going to write to them about it, Yes? All right, so we've already, that, that's clearly established, correct? Do we have that down? Yes? Okay, I hope so. I hope so, okay, because something goes weird as soon as we get past this verse, all right? So, hey, I'm trying to challenge you to contend for the faith. And in order to help them know why he's trying to exhort them, to help them understand the significance of their need to contend for the faith, he clearly lays out why they need to contend for the faith, and we see that in the very next verse. Why is he pleading, and why is there such an urgency that they contend for the faith? Because something has happened inside the church. Someone has come inside the church, right? Remember we talked, we spent like two weeks, three weeks, talking about invasion and then insurgency, right? The church had been invaded by people who came in how? Unawares, secretively, right? They came in and these men have done two things. What two things have they done according to that verse? They crept in unawares. They changed the grace of God into lasciviousness and deny the Lord. Does everybody see that? They've done two things. So, hey, guys, I need you to contend for the faith because there's people within, in, in, you know, within your midst, inside of the church, who are turning the grace of God into lasciviousness and have denied the Lord. There's an urgency for you to contend. Everybody got that? Everybody see that? Okay, pretty simple, pretty straightforward. Now, starting in verse 5, I've called in my outline, verse 5, uh, and we won't go to where we stop at this point, but starting in verse 5, I call this part of the outline, what? Does anybody remember? Remembrance, or the remembrance, or the reminders, however you want to word it. Starting in verse 5, he begins to remind, give them uh, reminders. He he tries to put them in remembrance. In fact, look at the exact words. I will therefore put 
You. Who is the you according to verse 1, 2, 3, and 4? He's putting the believers in remembrance, yes? Okay, now, this is very important. He, obviously, this, these reminders are there to do what? To put them in remembrance, okay. It's to remind them. All right, so you, so you think he's, put, he's reminding them of judgment for what reason? Okay, good. Okay, good. Uh, at least one person has it down. Okay, good. I, I'm glad. Okay. I'm worried that nobody else does. Okay. I'm, I'm glad you have it down. He, he's writing to believers, right? Everybody remember that? Okay. Just, just a few minutes ago, we established that, right? Okay, so he's writing to, remember, uh, to, he's writing to believers and he's reminding them. What does he want to accomplish with this reminder? Don't say it again. Don't, don't, don't say it again. Okay. Because I want everyone else to get what you already know. Okay. No, that's okay. That's okay. Don't worry, don't worry about it. That, that's the, I, like to, I like to have everyone struggle. That's just no, no big deal. Okay. All right. Okay. The unfaithful will be punished. All right. So how, what's, the, what's that reminder supposed to do to the believers? Oh, so one's, okay. See, here we go again. All right. You're, you're viewing it as a warning to the believer. See, so he just read it as, hey, believer, so Emma's the believer, you better be faithful or you're going to be judged. Is that the way we should read this? He's, what has he already said about the believer? See, I, I, I'm having such a hard time here. I don't know what I'm doing wrong. Okay, all right. What has he already said about the believers? If they're preserved, why should they be warned that they could possibly be judged? Hey, Emma, you're comp- preserved. Hey, tomorrow when you go to school, if you don't do the right thing, you're going to be judged. Well, man, that my preservation is pretty much garbage, right? That seems odd, right? But see, there's some weird thing built into a lot of the way this is preached that everyone does this. This is the way people preach it. Hey, look, guys, you see all of these reminders? All of these reminders are about what? You look at the reminders. Judgment, right? Can we all agree? Yes, right? Just look at the first two. The first one deals with Israel, judged, and then it deals with angels who are judged. Okay, so for some weird reason, this keeps happening in sermons, and it seems that it's built into this congregation as well. Hey, that the way is re- Guys, you better contend or you're going to be judged. That's how, that's, for some reason, that's how everyone keeps reading it. It's like almost like the natural direction it goes. And does, does everyone see the problem with that? He's already told the believers that they're what? Sanctified, called, preserved, that they have the blessing of what three things? Mercy, peace, and love. He, he's already stated that he's not writing to warn them. He's writing to plead with them not to be faithful. It, it's so weird that we, 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 there's, a, there's some disconnect. He's told us exactly why he's writing. Why is he writing again? To exhort them to contend. He doesn't say to be faithful. Does he say anything about being faithful there? About, be, about contending, yes? Contending for the faith that they already have, correct? 
So the reminders can't be, hey, I'm trying to remind you so that you don't get judged. That doesn't seem to be the right way to read this. I'll I'll, I'll try to state it this way, all right? When we look at these reminders and try to figure out what's going on here, there's three ways we could look at it, okay? Well, well, there's only one way. But there's three, obviously, ways people attempt to do this that I'm having a hard time trying to understand. One, it's a warning that they better contend or they are going to be judged. That's how some people just seem to just fall right into that trap. Does everybody understand how people would read it that way? I mean, I don't know how they would read it that way, but you see why they would read it that way? They see the reminders of judgment going to whom? To the believers, and they're warning them that that could be you. That's how some people read it. Does everybody understand that? Right? A second way is, hey, guys, this is a warning. Don't follow those false teachers or you're going to be judged. That's the second way that I've heard it preached. Right? Hey, these, these false teachers are going to be judged. Don't follow them. Don't follow them. Right? That's the second way I've heard it preached over and over and over. All right? Or there's a third way. And she's already pointed it out a couple of times. In fact, I think uh, when I was listening to the recording, you're the one who pointed it out last week as well. Okay, all right. So there, there's, there's a third way to look at it. Hey, guys, you know why you need to contend for the faith? Because those people who crept in, they're going to be judged. And if you are motivated by mercy and peace and love, wouldn't you be motivated to go to the person who's about to be judged and do what you can to do what? To lead them away from the thing that's going to lead to their destruction or to lead them to Christ, yes? Does that make sense? All right? And again, I'm going to, I'm going to just, and I know, I, I know so I'm going to get emails going, you've repeated this, a hundred, I'll repeat it a thousand times because there's no point, in, look, we, sometimes preaching seems to be The goal is just to get through the series. And I don't care if we never get through the series because there's no point in finishing the series if we we don't even understand how to interpret the first couple of verses of the book. All right? So I want to make sure we're all on the same page. Everybody with me? Here we go. All right? Here we go. Everybody ready? The book begins with a what? A greeting. Okay, I want everyone to say that with me. The book begins with what? A greeting. Okay, in the greeting, what things are identified? Number one, the author. Number two, the recipients. Okay, and these recipients are described in what way? Preserved, called, and sanctified. I know that's not the correct order, but you get the idea. I I think the correct order is sanctified, preserved, and called. Correct? All right. That's the order. Everybody got that? So this establishes who he's writing to. That would tell me he's writing to what kind of people? Saved, right? Because saved people are sanctified and preserved and called. Agreed? Is everybody with me so far? Okay. Now, so he identifies that. What else does he do in the greeting? Okay, he gives the blessing in the greeting, right? That, they're, that the recipients are blessed. What are the three parts of the blessing? Mercy, peace, and love. Okay, that's all great. Once again, demonstrating that they are what? Saved. Okay, then he starts off giving us, so he goes from the greeting. Now what does he do? In our outline? The purpose, the purpose, right? And what's the purpose? Well, first he establishes what the original purpose was. He was going to write to them about the common salvation. Meaning, once again, he's identified the recipients as what? Believers. Everybody got that? Okay, however, something, something changed, right? And he had, to, he, had to, he had to deviate from his original plan. My original plan, write about common salvation. However, how does he, how does he word it? It was needful. A need arose, and this need was to do what? To exhort. What was the definition of that again, Lydia? Beseech, beg, encourage, 
instruct. Hey, guys, please, I'm begging you. I'm pleading with you. You have to contend for the faith, right? And that's what he's going to plead. He's going to wake up to contend for the faith. Who would contend for the faith? An unbeliever or a believer? A believer, right? And what faith does he want them to contend for? Well, the, once, the one that was once delivered to the saints, right? Is that how it's worded? Yes? All right. The faith. He wants them to contend for the faith. Right? Now, why do they need to contend for the faith? Next verse. Because some people have crept in unawares, right? And these people have crept in unawares are doing two things. What two things are they doing? They're turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. And what else are they done? They're denying the Lord. So far, so good. Now, that tells you he wants the believer to encourage, the, to, he wants to encourage the believers to contend with the ones who are turning the grace of God into lasciviousness and the ones who are denying the Lord, right? Everybody got that? Simple, straightforward. Now, in order to, now, the very next thing he does after giving them the purpose is he gives them reminders. This would tell me, in fact, what's the exact wording of the text when he gives the reminder? Well, no, the, the very beginning of it. We haven't even made it that far yet because we have to keep going backwards. I will therefore put you. I will therefore I will therefore, the therefore is based off what? What just came before. I will therefore put you in remembrance because there's some people who've crept into the church who are turning the grace of God into lasciviousness and denying the Lord. Therefore, I'm going to put you, believer, in remembrance. Now, how do we interpret the remembrance? Remember, there's three ways. What are the three ways to, to understand why he's putting them in remembrance? Some would say he is warning them to contend so that they won't receive the judgment that he's going to point out in the reminder. That doesn't make any sense. Why does it not make any sense? They're preserved. Thank you. Number two, warning them not to follow false teachers. He doesn't seem concerned that they're going to follow the false teachers. He's just worried that they won't contend. In his concern here, their lack, their, he seems to be bothered that they're not contending. He doesn't seem bothered about them following the false teachers. Agreed? Right? So then that would bring us to the only logical and possible way of interpreting this. He's pleading with them to contend because these men who crept, crept in unawares are going to be judged and he's going to remind them of the judgment God gives out to unbelievers and those who are unfaithful to his word. And that would mean you should be motivated to contend. Does that make sense? All right. Are we sure? Are we positive? So if next week I ask these same questions, what should I hear? The purpose of the book is to encourage believers to contend with the men who have crept in unawares so that those men who crept in won't face the judgment that he points out in the reminders. Well, he's, he's encouraging the believers to go to those men to try to bring it back to the faith. Yeah, Jude's not writing to the unbeliever. He's writing to the believer, all right? Does that make sense? Well, that gets into a whole doctrine of salvation. I, I would obviously believe that they have never been saved, right? But the, the main issue is that they're, he's calling them to the faith. This seems to imply that they have, they have been associated with the faith, but they've never truly embraced the true faith. They have a fraudulent faith, a counterfeit faith, right? Does that make sense? Right, but good, good question. All right. Everybody good to go now? Right. Is, that, is that good? Are we good? So what did we, I don't want you just to hear like, man, he, should, he definitely wants me to get this and he's really irritating this morning. Okay. Okay. I want you to set aside that. What I want you to see is the principle which we just applied here. What did we do in those, in those first few verses? What did we just do in those first few verses? 
we established, everybody ready? The hermeneutical key. The key to the book is understanding exactly what he's trying to accomplish. Preachers may establish that key and then turn around in the next sermon and deny the very key they established in their introduction. And that's usually when I start throwing things across my room when I'm listening to sermons. I'm like, I listened to your introduction. You gave me the hermeneutical key. And the very next week, you went against the hermeneutical key you established. It's like, what's the point of the hermeneutical key if you're not going to follow it, right? If you get here early to the church and you have a key that will let you in, and you just sit in the car, what's the point of having the key? Use it, right? So whatever hermeneutical key we establish, what do we have to do? Use it to unlock every verse and every chapter within a book. So the hermeneutical key here, hey, guys, I'm trying to encourage you to contend. That's the hermeneutical key. So now how do I interpret the reminders? The reminders are, are to there to do what? To exhort, to motivate them to contend. Not to scare them to death that they're going to be judged. That would go against the hermeneutical key. Does that make sense? But which one preaches better? Oh, the warning. That preaches better, right? That preaches better. Well, guess what? A lot of times preachers pick what preaches better instead of what is accurate to the text. I can't worry about what preaches better. Now, I'm motivated to do that because I want people to go, oh, that was a good sermon. That was convicting. But if all I'm doing is trying to get good sermon and that was convicting, then I need to quit because, well, you know, my job is to say, to get you to understand the text, whether you think it's good or exciting or convicting or emotional. My job is not to play those games. My job is when you're done, you're like, man, I understand Jude now better than I ever understood it. And then the next time you hear a sermon, you can be like, wait a minute, I think they just missed the hermeneutical key. Right? My job is to make sure you're not tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. What's the best way of doing that? Is to toss you around here. Okay? So then when you get out there, you're like, ah, you got nothing. My pastor confuses me far more than you do. Okay, right? That's, that's the goal here. Does that make sense? All right. Now let me see how many people online currently are disagreeing. I'm always afraid to look. All right, here we go. Let's see. Hopefully there's not many. Okay. Okay, uh, wait. Okay, good. Twyla was getting it right. Okay, all right. So Twyla was on the same page. Okay, so we had, we had two people get it right. Okay, but hopefully now everyone's on the same page, right? So now we're all experts on how to interpret Jude, right? So if you ever read a book, like I could give you a book right here on Jude, oh, you probably would, oh, wait, they don't handle it the right way. I could, you should be able to immediately see it. And, and not because of what I've said, because what the text says, right? Does that, I want to make sure you understand that. I don't want you to walk going, he, uh, the way we approach Jude know how the text establishes. Does that make sense? I'm irrelevant. Okay? The text is what's relevant. Does that make sense? And I didn't do anything special there just trying to make you see the text. Now, that brings us to the reminders. Now, the first reminder we've already spent plenty of time working on. We we don't really need to go back through it again. It's pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward. The first reminder, he points them to what story? of Israel and their deliverance from Egypt. However, what happened? They were destroyed. That believed not. Do you see that key word, believed not? That's not referring to the believers that he's writing to, right? That's referring to the men who crept in unawares. So what is this just saying? Hey, guys, remember Israel? Now think about, see how beautiful this illustration is. When they came out of Egypt, all of them were there, right? Yes. They're all going together. Think of them as a congregation, right? As a church in the wilderness. They're all there. Do they have the tabernacle? What's going to be established, right? Okay. They have Moses, right? 
So in a sense, they have a prophet. They have God literally guiding them and directing them. They're all there. So from the outside, you can be like, they're following their God. They're trusting their God. It would, from an outside, you can look like they're all following God, right? But what do we know what was going on inside the church, inside the congregation? There were those who did not believe. And there were different times they demonstrated that, right? Clearly, we see a, a strong time when they finally get to the promised land and they decide to do what? <laughs> nope, we're not going in. Give us a captain. We're going back to Egypt. And God, like, God, no, God told you to go here. Remember, he's the one who led them there. So here's God literally leading you. And you're like, nope, sorry, God, don't like that direction. Go in my own direction. And God said, okay, fine. You can have your own direction. You won't go into the promised land. You're going to walk around for 40 years and everyone 20 and above is going to do what? Die. They were destroyed. That tells you, man, within our church, there can be people who don't believe. He's already identified them, right? What are they doing? Turning the grace of God into lasciviousness and denying the Lord. Un, there's unbelievers in our midst. So what do they need to focus on? We got to contend with those within the church who may not believe because they're not going to get to the promised land. They're going to die. That's, a, that's an easy motivating factor, right? Okay. I wish that the next verse wasn't in the book of Jude. And the reason I wish the next verse wasn't in the book of Jude is because it really distracts us from the purpose of the letter. So he goes from uh, Israel until this weird, like nobody seems to have a clue. Everyone argues about it. Uh, in Bible college, a seminary, it just the whole, that whole day, whenever you are studying this, it just turns into weeks of arguing because no one can agree and it's really frustrating. But we see the next thing that happens. Verse 6. And the angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Now, immediately when people read this, guess what happens? What do you think happens as soon as anyone reads this? If you're in a Sunday school, small group, church, Anywhere. What happens when immediately when people read verse 6? We completely get distracted from the purpose of the book. Now, on one hand, I don't want to do that. But on the other hand, we have to do that because there's so much controversy surrounding it. So first, I know we've already started working on it. But let's just back up a little bit and let's once again place this in the context of the book. Right? Immediately people want the Nephilim and everybody wants to start talking about angels and, and Genesis 6 and, and everybody starts going crazy. I understand the temptation to do that. But here's a very important hermeneutical principle that you can never forget. All right? Never forget this. When you're studying the Bible, you see something in a verse and you're like, ooh, ooh, butterfly, right? And you want to start chasing the butterfly. Okay? You need someone, you know, have some slap yourself and go, no, 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 no. Don't chase the butterfly. Don't chase the butterfly. Right? I got to figure out what this verse means in relation to the book in which it is found. You can, you can write on your notes, right? You can say, investigate this later. But for now, I need to focus on what this means in context. So, think of it this way. We have angels, Right? So think of the moment all the angels are created, right? They're all there. Looks good, yes? You have all these angels. However, something happens in the midst of those angels. They would look like they're all servants of God, all created to glorify God, to serve God, right? But then what happens within that group of angels? Some go against, in fact, what's the wording in uh, Jude? Did not keep their position of authority. King James says, did not keep their first estate. They, in other words, some within that group do something that leads to judgment. Once again, you have a group of, from an external perspective, like if you're sitting there and you can see all the angels, you'd be like, wow, what glorious spiritual beings there to serve God and to say, holy, 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 amazing. 
wait, what just, wait, where are they going? Wait, wait, why are they being put in chains? Wait, what just happened? Right? Now, the correlation, Jude is writing to a group of believers. They all look like believers, but there's some within the midst that are doing what? Turning the grace of God into lasciviousness and denying the Lord. Here's a group of angels. All look good from the outside, but there were some on the inside who ultimately did what? In a sense, denied the Lord. Turned against God. So the point is that even angels who do not follow God will be judged. So then that is a guarantee then Then the individuals within that particular congregation who had denied the Lord, they will be judged, which once again should be a motivator to whom? The believers that we need to find these people within the congregation and do what we can to contend with them in a with love, with peace, and with mercy. Not in a derogatory, horrible way, but in a loving way. Why? We don't want them to be judged. That's the context. Does that make perfect sense? All right. Now, we still have to deal with all of the controversy surrounding the verse. All right. So let's go through this. What are the two... How will we say this? When it, well, we're going to have to go to Genesis 6, and we've already went there, but let's just say this. What que- so outside of that context... What question should any, at some point, a Bible student is going to ask about these angels? Let me read it again. Verse 6. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness, under judgment of the great day. So, if I'm doing a Bible study, right, on my own, I would, be, I would, I would immediately try to understand verse 6 in the context with which it is found, which I've already done for you, Right? I've tried to make that make perfect sense in what Jude is trying to accomplish. But at some point in my notebook, I would be like, okay, for further study, here are the questions I need to answer. So what questions need to be answered about that verse separate from the context of Jude? In other words, you have this set aside to work on on a different day. All right. What would be the questions you need to answer in verse 6? Do what? Okay, possibly. That's not really a question, but okay, but it's something we should do, all right? Let's, let, let's just start with the questions first, right? The, 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 key, the key to a good Bible study is the ability to ask good questions, right? The ability uh, to be a good Bible student is really like to be a good detective, right? So we got to ask some questions here, right? In a sense, think of it this way. I'm not, I'm not saying this is a great illustration. Think of every verse as a crime scene, And when you come upon a crime scene, what are you supposed to do? Observation, right? And then ask a lot of questions. So what are some questions on this crime scene? Okay, Okay. well, well, okay. Well, let's start with the first part. And the angels which kept not their first estate. So the first question would be, who, who are these angels? And how did they leave their first estate? Would that be two good questions? Do we know who a, which angels this is referring to? And how did they leave their first estate? Those would be good questions, all right? But left their own habitation, which would go with the idea of leaving their first estate, hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of that great day. What question would we ask about that? When did this occur? Who? How? When, right? Remember those basic questions you ask of everything, right? What are those basic questions we ask? Say, everyone say it again. Who? Who, what, where, when, and how. Those are your friends. Okay, and why, right? Okay, right. why, right? That, that thing that kids do that you get irritated about that I always tell you, don't get irritated. Encourage the why. Encourage the why. The more times they ask why, give them more candy. Give them money. Give them a car. Give them anything. The minute they stop asking why, take everything away from them. All right? Ground them, put them in a corner, okay? You didn't, what am I in trouble for? You didn't ask why one time today. You're grounded for the rest of your life. Okay, 
Why? 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 Those are the best questions in the world, right? Why, why are those questions so good? That's the only way you get information. If you don't ask why, then you just kind of accept things as they are, which is the worst thing you can do. Everything's got to be questioned. Everything has to be challenged. It has to be. Can it be maddening? Yes. Get over it. All right, that's the thing. Okay, that problem is with you, not with them. You want to encourage that questioning. That's the way we learn. When it comes to the best Bible students, the one going, why, 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 why? Those are the ones who who start trying to figure out the text. But who, what, where, when, how, why, all of those, those are your best friends as a Bible student. Those are your, like your best friends. You never let, let them leave you. Who, what, where, when, how? You have to, they should just go with you everywhere. People are like, who's your friends? Who, what, where, when, why? These are my friends. Do you have any real friends? I don't want real friends. I don't ask these questions. These are the friends I have. Right? So let's go. What's the first question? Who? Who are these angels? Who? 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 Next? What? What did they do? What did they do? Like, well, I don't know what they do. You know what they did? We know the consequences, right? I mean, but we don't know what they did. They left their first estate. Can anyone tell me what that is? When, did, what, what, when, where, how? I mean, I could ask lots of questions, okay? And then next, when did this occur? When did, when did they leave their first estate? And when did... They end up being placed in chains. Those are the kinds of questions that we should ask. Now, guess what sometimes happens in Bible study? Who, what, where, when, and how, by the time you're done, you may not have an answer to all the questions. And a lot of Christians don't like that. But what should you always care about? Truth over certainty. Some preachers want to give you certainty over truth give you an easy answer and appease you, and then you're like, oh, okay, I know the answer. But then you get confronted with someone who's really a good student who may be an atheist or agnostic, and then you end up looking foolish because in many cases the atheist and agnostic ask far more questions than the believer who will accept a little answer given in a 30-minute sermon. You don't want certainty. Sometimes you guess what you're left with. A lot of uncertainty. A lot of times you're like, I, I don't have a clue. I don't know. Those are some possible questions. So guess what? Here's the difficulty. What's the difficulty in answering those questions? What's the difficulty in answering those questions looking at Jude? There's just a, a glaring problem here. Like I said, it screams at us. What's the, what's the pr- major problem with the, trying to answer any of those questions? Okay. Here's the glaring problem. Are you ready? Jude doesn't answer one of them. Jude doesn't even bother. He doesn't even attempt to answer it. No. He just says, they're angels. They left their first estate. They ended up in chains, waiting for judgment. And then immediately what he's doing in the next verse moves on. Well, he he states it in a way like they should know. Yes, he reminds them of something that should have been common knowledge for them, but we're not them, right? So we have to assume what that common knowledge is, right? So we have to do a lot of guessing, but I'm just saying Jude does not bother to answer any of these questions. He just states it as a dogmatic fact and moves on, because which immediately demonstrates to me as a reader that he's not interested in the details, He just wants you to know that there were angels who got put in chains to be judged. Therefore, these ungodly men who crept in, they're going to be judged. You need to be motivated to contend. That's the purpose. So he's not interested in it. However, as a a good Bible student, on one hand, I want to just forget, skip it. But we can't skip it because it raises all of these questions. Right? So then what do we do to try to find an answer? Well, what, what are some things we can do to try to find an answer? What, 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 like a good Bible said, what would be, you, you said look other places. What would be the first thing we need to look for? Well, I think, I think a good idea. Think of every, 
you can, we don't, I'm going to make you do this. I already have the passages down, but I'm going to see what you can find right now in the next first couple of minutes. Think of every passage in the Bible, right? In the New Testament, I don't think you're going to find any of the old, that possibly mentions angels in chains. Any passage that speaks of angels in chains. Okay, all right. Someone, okay, keep that one. Someone said Revelation. There'd be a possible problem with that. Okay. You're talking about Satan being bound in Revelation chapter 20? Hey, well, I don't know. That would be not very helpful because then you would have to say that that happened before Jude. Right? Okay, because Jude is reminding. So I don't think that one would be helpful. In fact, that one would be helpful in one way. If Revelation 20 speaks of Satan being bound, then what would be the question? Well, wait a minute. Jude is reminding them of angels that were already bound. So how come Satan wasn't already bound? Right? That, that would be a good question. Right? Any other passage? Someone said 2 Peter 2. We'll go there in a second. Any others? Any others? Because this talk about angels being, or who are in chains. They're bound. Do you have anything else that would be of help? Now, the fewer, the fewer, the, the okay, 2 Peter 2. Everyone's going to end up in 2 Peter, I think. Anybody, everybody's going to end up in 2 Peter. All right, so let's just go to 2 Peter since that's where everyone's going to end up. All right, 2 Peter. There may be another passage somewhere. I'm not going to mention it currently, but 2 Peter. We're not going to get too far. I know we spent a lot of time. It's okay. 2 Peter 2. All right. We could go to verse 1. Everybody agree? That's probably the best thing to do. 2 Peter 2, 1. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them and bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Now, immediately, that's uh, what, what's interesting about uh, 2 Peter 2, 1. Does that sound very similar to Jude? Yeah, you got false teachers. Um, where, where? In the church. What does he say? Teachers among you, right? So once again, he's worrying about false teachers inside the church. And many shall follow the pernicious ways by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. Verse 3. And through uh, covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. Again, does that sound very similar to Jude? Very similar to Jude. In fact, it's amazing how closely the, 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 the it almost like, okay, did one borrow from the other? It's, it's so similar. Then starting at verse 4, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. All right. So now, what does Peter, what does Peter say a little different than Jude? Cast to hell. All right. They sinned. So Peter refers to them as sinning. Jude refers to them as leaving their first estate, right? So clearly some kind of sin took place and they were placed into chains. Does everybody see that? Right? Now, I, I'm, just for time's sake, the, the, the possible solution, but, well, well, let me do this. Okay, so what's the, what's the immediate problem with these two passages? The immediate problem with these two passages is not only trying to identify the angels, we all know, well, wait a minute. According to Ephesians 6, we fight not against flesh and blood, right? We're involved in a spiritual war that involves powers, principalities, seeming to be referring to fallen angelic beings, yes? 
So if we're involved in a spiritual war, well, we wouldn't be involved in a spiritual war if they're all locked up. Peter goes on to tell us what about Satan? He roams about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So that seems Satan is walking around, okay? In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see uh, demonic possessions taking place, yes? Even in the book of Acts, we see similar things, yes? So if there's demon- demonic possession, that means the de- that's, that would be fallen angels, right? So why are there some that seem to be roaming about engaged in a spiritual war? However, there's some that are locked up. That means there's a distinction between the ones locked up and the ones not locked up. What did these do to get locked up? If Satan doesn't get locked up, what did these guys do? Right? That's the, 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 the million-dollar question. The best we have to answer, everyone runs to, is Genesis chapter 6. That's where everyone runs to, Genesis chapter 6. All right? Now, go to Genesis 6. Now, next week, I promise... We're just going to go right to this because uh, hopefully we won't have to do all of what we had to do again this morning. And I apologize for repeating it, but it just needed to be done. All right. So Genesis chapter six, here we go. And it came to pass when the men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair and they took them wives all of all which they Chose. All right. The argument is, according to some, and we're going to read a number of commentaries next week, that the sons of God are what? Angels. And these angels engage, basically take to uh, engage in physical relations with whom? The daughters of men. All right. So this according to the the concept, creates a major problem. All right, now, there are two ways to approach Genesis chapter 6, right? The first is that the sons of God here do not refer to angelic beings, but they refer to whom? Okay, all right. Go back to Genesis 5. Genesis 5. And what do you have starting in verse 6? A genealogy of whom? Seth. All right? That's the genealogy of Seth. These are seen to be the sons of God or the believers. Go back to Genesis 4, starting in verse 16. Cain, not a great guy, right? Killed his brother, right? Cain went out from the presence of the Lord, dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden, and Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Enoch, and he builded a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. And unto Enoch was born Irad, and Irad begat Mahujael, and Mahujael begat Methuselel, and Methuselel begat Lamech. You see all of that? that? So the argument is the sons of God are the godly line of Seth, and the daughters of men are the ungodly line of Cain. Now, what's the strength of that? The strength of that uh, position is that that places Genesis 6 in the context of Genesis 4 and 5. That's a good textual argument, right? Hey, this is the godly line of Seth and the ungodly line of Cain, and they come together. Now, what's some problems with this? Well, problem number one, has there been any clear prohibition against such action? 
Now, that's always a problem in Genesis, though. So, so, uh, we got to be fair here. This is the, this is the never-ending hermeneutical dilemma of Genesis, all right? And people will argue this all day. Okay, there's, at, at one point, well, I'll give you an example. All right, Adam and Eve had children, right? Now, how did those children ultimately bring forth more children? You had to have brothers and sisters intermarrying. Now, what do we always say? Well, that wasn't a sin at that time because there had been no law given against it. But then we'll go a little bit further in Genesis and see someone do something and we'll say, that was wrong. And what's the obvious question you could ask? Had a law been given to, to say it was wrong? Because sometimes we'll, we're like, well, there was no sin, there was no law against it. And then somewhere else in Genesis, they'll, we'll say that was wrong, but there was no law against it. So how do we judge the people of Genesis? Now, if God steps in and says it's wrong, then it's wrong. But if God doesn't step in, how do we judge it? Right? There's times we judge Abram and Sarah for doing things and we're like, they, what they did was wrong, but was there a prohibition against it? You see where this becomes major problematic? So is there a prohibition against it? Well, does there have to be a prohibition against it? It depends on how you want to interpret the rest of Genesis. It becomes a major, it's a, a, a constant debate in, in Bible interpretation. So that's one issue is I don't know if there's a prohibition against it. But go back to Genesis 6 because this is the real, the big question. Are you ready? Was it the sons of God taking wives from the daughters of men, was it that action that led to the judgment? Or is this just stated as this was going on? A lot of times we read it as, see, that's the thing that brought about the flood. Was it the thing that brought about the flood or is just stated as a historical, hey, by the way, this was going on at this time. So, what do you need to do then? Keep reading. Where, where, does the, uh, where does the threat of judgment appear in Genesis 6? Where's the first threat of judgment in Genesis 6? Verse 3. Does everyone agree that there's a threat of judgment in verse 3? Everyone says that there's a threat in verse 3? Yes? Everyone agree? Verse 1 and 2 is all about what? About the sons of God and daughters of men, do you see, do, does that dominate verse 1 and 2? Then immediately we go into verse 3. And what is exact, what's the exact words of the threat? The very first words of 3 are what? Stop right here. So we immediately go from the daughters of men and the sons of God intermarrying, correct? And immediately God seems unhappy which would seem to indicate that what made him unhappy? Verse 1 and 2. That would mean, wait a minute, that, this raises some serious questions. So you, you're saying that because the godly line and the ungodly line married, God got that upset over it? That would pose a little bit of a problem, right? Why? Well, even if we go with the rules, whether the rules are not there, because we play all kinds of weird games with Genesis, the thing is, this happens what? Over and 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 over again, even after the flood. It goes on all the way up till today. So it'd be like, God got, why did he get so upset that time, but it doesn't get upset almost, I mean, almost immediately after they get off the ark, it starts happening again. It doesn't take long for it, it starts happening again. So that, that's kind of a weird thing, yes? Right? Is there any other clues? It, so he says, my spirit is not always going to strive, right? And then what does he say? He makes some kind of pronouncement of what's, what's bothering him. Okay, he acknowledges that they're flesh, right? His day shall be 120 years. That's seeming to be referring to the fact that it's going to be 120 years from this warning to the flood, Okay. That's seeming to be the basic concept. You've got about 120 years till judgment comes. Then what happens in verse 4? 
There were giants in the earth. Now, some people immediately said, well, the giants are a result of this union. It doesn't necessarily say that, right? doesn't necessarily say that. We don't have to necessarily draw that correlation because giants show up after the flood, right? So, so I don't know if this is the product, if the giants are the product of the union, okay? There were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of, and after that, please note, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, they bare children to them. The same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. Who, their, their offspring do become somebody of power and authority. Agreed? Now, why do they become, why do these men become so prominent in power and authority? Well, I don't know. That, who knows? Next verse. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Now, please note, right after he again talks about the sons of God and the daughters of men, immediately, right, so look at what happens. Right after the daughters of men and sons of God are talked about in verse 2, or verse 1 and 2, immediately in 3, God is upset. Agreed? And then immediately after he talks about the sons of God and the daughters of men in verse 4, immediately, verse uh, 5, God is upset again. Does everybody see that? Seemingly to imply to me that what is making God so mad in the context here is the union between the sons of God and the daughters of men. And he says, I saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him in his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created. You have to identify what has God, what makes God so mad? If it's the union, which it, I think there's some, there's textual arguments that it is, then there's something really weird about this union. And I don't know if the godly line of Seth and the ungodly line of Cain is sufficient, is sufficient. So, so we have, so one possible answer is that the godly line of Seth marries the ungodly line of Cain and boom, God gets mad and destroys everybody. Second answer is the sons of God are whom? Angels and involved in physical relations with the daughters of men and they produce an offspring. Now this offspring now is going to be corrupted, yes? They're not going to be truly man. Not going to be truly angels. Therefore, by corrupting the human line, what could that possibly uh, lead to? How can they be redeemed? How can they, yeah, how can they be redeemed? Now, if he wipes them all out, out, and then after the flood, you go right back to just humans, then they can be redeemed by the coming Messiah. So, those are your two possible solutions. And we're going to have to stop there, but those are your two possible solutions. Okay? The beast, would that be the, the animals, or would that be the, the children from the animals? Uh, uh, referring to which verse? Uh, that he's going to wipe a, a, away? Yeah. I think there he's, he's just going to wipe, uh, wipe out. Well, let me look at the verse. I don't want to give an answer until I read it specifically. Okay. That's a good question. That's a very good question. Um, oh, verse 7, And I will destroy man whom I have created the face of the earth, both man and beast. No, I think that's referring to he's going to destroy animals too. So in other words, many of the animals are going to be destroyed as well. But that's a, that's a good question. So you see the two possible answers here? Godly line of Seth, ungodly line of Cain. They marry and somehow that makes God so angry he destroys everything. That seems kind of odd. Agreed? Now look, over here, angels and daughters of men coming together, that seems strange to me as well. Okay. Both of them are hard for me to wrap my mind around. But what's the strength of this one? What's the strength of the argument for the angels and the uh, daughters of men coming together? The strength of it is it explains 2 Peter 2 and Jude because now we would have angels who would be immediately what? Chained up so that this would never happen again. But you could argue why would God let it happen the first time? But that's always the question. Matthew 22, I believe, that angels are not given in, in marriage. Right. Yeah, that's, a, that's the one that's always used to argue against it. We'll, we'll have to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's a good one. Um, 
But that, yeah. So in other words, for every position, you're going to be able to find a verse that says, well, wait a minute, that calls that into question. Wait, that calls that into question. That calls that into question. I just know we got to figure out somewhere where did these angels come from and how do they end up locked up? Oh, yeah, yeah. Over and over and over, so they intermarry. It, so it does, yeah, the, the flood doesn't seem, why would he flood everything out if it's just going to go, continue to happen over and over and over? I, yeah, I completely agree. That, that's the one that makes no sense. But I'm saying, both sides, I'm telling you, there's problems with both. There's no beautiful answer here. You're going to just be left like, I don't know what to do with this, all right? But next week, we'll, we'll spend all time on that. I'm sorry we had to do so much review, but I, I felt that the hermeneutical answer to Jude was most important. What can we not forget about? Just remember this. The angels mentioned in Jude, even though we want to get sidetracked, remember the purpose there is to warn the believers that as angels were judged, those false, the men who've come into the church are going to be judged, and you need to be motivated to find those men and contend with them or they're going to be destroyed. That's the point that Jude wants you to understand. Not to get caught up in all of this other stuff, but we can't ignore all of this other stuff because we got to figure something. I mean, it doesn't make any sense, right? But remember, the ultimate goal here is not for us to answer all of these questions, is to see the danger of people who have crept in unaware, who are denying the Lord and turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. The motivation is to find those kinds of people and to contend with them. That's the motivation. Not to just spend forever trying to figure out who the angels were. If we forget that, we miss the whole purpose of the book. Does that make sense? All right. Well, stop there. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Thank you for giving us an opportunity to just try to learn and, and sharpen our skills and how to interpret your word so that we can try to find truth. And Lord, help us always be committed to truth over just simple answers. Because if we are satisfied with simple answers, we typically will never find the truth. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...